1983 movie, comedy, uh, Trading Places, tells the story of a street hustler and commodities broker who trade places. Uh, the broker, played by Dan Aykroyd, is fired from his job, winds up on the streets. The hustler, played by Eddie Murphy, is quickly elevated to Aykroyd's old job, uh, enjoying his house and his wealth. And in this scene, Aykroyd finds himself outside in the rain wearing a prostitute's fake fur coat, longingly looking into a posh restaurant where Murphy is dazzling Aykroyd's old colleagues uh, with his street smarts and his charm. Have you ever wanted in life to trade places with someone higher on the social ladder? Have you ever looked up and said, I want what they have, and I want them to have what I have? Have you ever wanted them to get bumped down a few rungs? Have you ever wanted the elites, the privileged, the powerful to stare at you from outside the restaurant, standing in the rain while you enjoy eating their escargot? Have you ever wanted to trade places? We've all wanted to trade places with other people in life before. Well, this morning, I want to look at a story in the Bible that describes that exact sort of thing happening. It's, it's a story that describes a great reversal, a moment in which we will all trade places. Some of us will trade up and ascend to the glories of heaven. Some of us will trade down lest we heed the warning of Jesus. The story takes place in the Gospel of Luke. Now, I want to look at it as the next installment of our ongoing study of the parables of Jesus. Way back in January, it feels like way back in 2012, <laughs> we started a new series on the parables uh, of Jesus. We took a little bit of a break to study COVID Christianity, but we're back in the parables. We're going to be in the parables uh, this summer. Now, maybe you know that Jesus, when he came to earth, the Son of God, he came to do many things. He came to die for our sins. He came to defeat the power of death and raise from the dead. Uh, but he also came to teach us. And like any good teacher, he used stories. We call these stories parables. And these parables have a lot to teach us about life and faith. And the parable that I want to study with you this morning is a very interesting one. It is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, let me read it to you. And just so you know, I'm actually not going to show you the, the parable up on the screen. We're not going to use slides at all this morning. Uh, Pastor Jason normally does the slides, but as you can appreciate, he is incredibly busy for the past few months. I wanted to give him just a little bit of a breather. I figured it takes about three or four hours to do slides sometime. Uh, that's three or four hours less that Jesus has. Uh, Jesus. <laughs> at some points, I think Jason is Jesus. Uh, three, he certainly serves us as though he is Jesus. Uh, that is three or four hours less that Jason has to do this week. So we're going we're gonna to do this morning's sermon old school. We're going to listen to it. We're going to do that, right? Christians have been doing that for generations. It's okay. It happens. It works. It can actually take place. Uh, so we will see if you have ears to hear. But if you, uh, if you need like something to look at, the sermon notes are actually on the website. Just go to rooftop.org Sunday and the sermon notes will be there. So here's Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came 
and licked his sores. Ew. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where, where uh, he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, down here, have, have pity on me. Have pity on me and, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his, his finger in water and, and cool my tongue because I am in agony. I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son! Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here with me, and you, you were in agony. I know, yeah, you were in agony. <laughs> and besides this, between us and you, a great chasm. A what? A chasm. A chasm. It's like a big, it's like a big wall, a big beautiful wall, has been separating you and us has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from, from there to us. can't happen. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. Let him warn them uh, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Because it's bad. Abraham replied, no can do. <laughs> they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to Moses and the prophets. No, Father Abraham. If someone from the dead goes to them, they, they will repent. They will. He said to them, Not likely. <clears throat> if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even by someone who comes back from the dead. We'll talk about that. <clears throat> so that's the story of the rich man Lazarus. Maybe you recognize this parable. The parable is about a, a very rich man, very poor man. A rich man lives in luxury every day. He wears purple, the color of kings. Uh, the poor man is laid at the gate of the rich man just hoping to get some scraps from the man's table. But he has to fight off the dogs, who, because they can't get scraps, they basically eat his, his, his scabs. Now, eventually, both men die. Poor man's taken to Abraham's side. Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, who offers Lazarus comfort. Uh, the rich man, due to his selfishness, is sent to a different place, a, a, a place called Hades, the realm of the dead. And he is in agony in Hades. He, he, is, he is feeling hot, hot, hot. So he calls out to Abraham and asks him to send Lazarus to give him just a, just a single drop of water. But Abraham says no, in, insisting that Lazarus' reward and the rich man's punishment, those have been set. Well, well then, the rich man pleads to Abraham, send Lazarus back to my family to warn them so, so they might avoid his fate. They are just as greedy as I am, he says. No can't do that either, says Abraham. If they do not believe what has already been written about 
uh, uh, this, the final judgment in the law and the prophets, they're not going to believe anybody who comes back from the dead. That's the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Now, if you recognize it, you actually might have, have, have wondered about it. People get fascinated by this parable. They get fascinated by what the parable might say about the afterlife. I mean, I don't know if you got this, but, but the rich man in Hades can apparently see the poor man at Abraham's side and talk with him. They actually have a, a conversation between the good place and the bad place. Now, does that mean anything? Is Jesus describing how heaven and hell will operate? Is Jesus even describing heaven and hell? Is he describing some sort of intermediate state before heaven and hell, or is he describing like actual heaven and hell? And, and if he is, uh, is, is this some indication that people in hell are going to be able to see people in heaven? Can people in heaven see people in hell? I mean, we can't pass through because of the, 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 the chasm, but will, will we see each other and be able to talk to each other? Is it going to be like prison glass, prison? You know, we can pick up the phone, hey, how are you doing in there? Oh man, get me out of here. I'm in agony. Well, that's not going to be very fun. I'm being in heaven, being able to see, see and talk to people in hell. Who's going to be happy in heaven there? Maybe it'd be like one-way glass, you know, where we can't see out, but they can see in. Hey, what's on the other side of the glass? Oh, it's our loved ones. They're in agony. Really? Oh, no. Wow. Well, can go play tennis? <laughs> so our curiosity about the afterlife, plus our imaginations, run wild with what Jesus describes here. Now, while I won't deny that this parable has anything to say about the details of the afterlife, I think it is highly unlikely. You know as well as I do that we like to distract ourselves <clears throat> with stuff in the Bible that isn't the main point. We like to distract ourselves with stuff that isn't the main point because honestly, honestly, the main point, which tends to be more obvious, also tends to be harder. So instead of just obeying the main point, we like to distract ourselves with other details. We do this with the book of Genesis. What exactly happened on day four of the first week of creation? Well, no, 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 no. Is that the main point? We do this with Revelation. What does the second trumpet mean? Is that the main point? And we like to do that here. Jesus describes the afterlife the way he does, probably not because that's what it will be like, but because it serves his main point. And what's his main point? Well, his main point is actually, once again, fairly simple. His main point is that, and normally I would put this up on the screen, but I already see some of you like looking up there. You've been trained to look when I get to this point. It's not going to be up there. You have to listen. Look here. His main point is, selfish rich people are in serious jeopardy of going to hell forever. That's the main point. Selfish, greedy, rich people who ignore the poor are in serious jeopardy of going to hell forever. You see, this is a story about how our decisions about money on earth influence our eternity. Jesus tells this parable in a series of teachings about money, as Jesus has already said in chapter 16. You cannot serve both God and money. As he says a little bit later in Luke chapter 18, he says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This is a story about money. Now, it's not that Jesus is, is, is anti-money. It's not that he's anti-rich. He's anti-greed. But on top of that, it's not just that he's anti-greed. He's actually pro-poor. He's pro-Lazarus. He's not pro-poverty. It's not like he's yay poverty. No, his heart is with those who are on the losing side of life and against those who could help but don't. You see, what we have here in the story of Lazarus and the rich man isn't a story 
about the mechanics of the afterlife. It's a reflection of something we see throughout the teachings of Jesus. The, theologians actually have a, a word for what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, what, they, what they call this, they call it the great reversal. Just picture that on the screen. The great reversal. We might call it trading places. The great reversal is an event that will happen in the future in which the rich and the powerful are demoted because of their greed and the humble and the poor are lifted up by a God who wants to comfort them after years of pain. And we see this throughout Jesus' ministry and even before. The prophets predicted the great reversal. Jesus' mother Mary predicted the great reversal in her song in, in, in Luke, uh, in her Magnificat. But, but Jesus, his life was built around the great reversal. And he talks about it very explicitly, especially in the Gospel of Luke, and especially in the Gospel of Luke chapter 6. Here's what Jesus says in chapter 6 about the great reversal. He says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. That's one half of the great reversal. But we forget about the other half of the great reversal, and here that is. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed. Anybody have breakfast this morning? We are well fed. Woe to you who are well fed. For you will go hungry. Blessed are you who are poor. Woe to you who are rich. That's the great reversal. That is trading places. It's Jesus' warning, his assurance that at some point greed will be punished and the hunger will be fed. The haves will not always have and the have-nots will not always have not. We will trade places. Now, <clears throat> this great reversal is such an important theme to Jesus and it has such an incredible bearing on our lives that it behooves us to dig into it. Jesus tells the story so that we don't live in hell forever. The last thing Jesus wants is for us to get reversed in the wrong direction. So that's what I want to do with my time this morning. I want to look back into the parable to see what it has to tell us about the great reversal. I actually think we have five or six things to learn about the great reversal from this parable. But for consistency's sake, I've condensed them into three. So I have three points with about five or six points about the great reversal. First, the great reversal reflects the character and the judgment of God. The great reversal reflects the character and the judgment of God. At the great reversal, it's not like God is going to indiscriminately punish rich people and elevate poor people. It's not like if we have any money at all, we'll go to Hades, and if we are poor, we'll automatically be lifted up. That wouldn't be fair. I mean, you know as well as I do that a lot of poor people are poor because they're lazy, and a lot of rich people are incredibly generous. This will get sorted out. But that is exactly Jesus' point. This is going to get sorted out. It's going to get sorted out because that's the nature of the God of the universe. That's his character. His heart breaks for what the poor have to put up with in life, and he detests the greedy rich who get lucky and do not use their wealth to bless other people who have been unlucky by being born in the wrong zip code. God is overall incensed by the unfairness of this situation. I mean, a poor man lies inches away from food that could save him. 
And, la- and, and the rich man has everything he needs to alleviate the poor man's suffering, but doesn't. Jesus describes the world this way because that's the world we live in. The haves have so much to offer the have-nots, but don't always, sometimes ignoring them at their very doorstep. Just picture, if you will, the homeless citizens of San Francisco lining the driveway up to Google headquarters. One of the richest companies in the world sitting in the middle of one of the largest homeless populations in the country. Or picture the scene at our southern border. With crowds of desperate people fleeing to escape drug and gang violence, but held at the border inches away from the resources of one of the richest countries in the history of the world. Now, I know, I know these are complicated scenarios. I know these are complicated problems. Honest people have honest disagreements about the best way to alleviate poverty. I acknowledge that. But the complications of these situations in no way reduce God's fury at the existence of this inequity. We see God's character here. We see his justice. We see his rage. We see his determination to fix this. It's not going to last. He's not going to let it. We see God's justice. But we also see his heart. We see God's heart for the poor, especially in one tiny little detail. I've always been fascinated by the fact that this parable is the only one of Jesus' parables in which one of the characters has a what? A name. Did you get that? It's the only parable that Jesus tells in which one of the characters has a name. What's his name? Lazarus. It wasn't just the poor man, it was Lazarus. Rich man didn't have a name, just the rich man. But the poor man has a name. Scholars wonder, why? Why did Jesus name this guy? Theories abound. I think it's because Jesus sees and wants us to see the poor man's humanity. We oftentimes miss that. We, we see beggars, we see tramps, we see statistics, if, if we see them at all, right? But every impoverished soul has a name. Jesus shows the poor dignity by giving them a name. They, they are Lazarus, and they are at our gate. Honestly, uh, this is something that the African-American community wants us to understand that the victims of racial violence are not statistics, they're not nameless victims, they are people with names. The man who died in Minneapolis under the knee of a police officer had a name. His name was George Floyd. He had a name, a family, dignity. And the officer who died at the hands of rioters in St. Louis this week wasn't yet just another casualty. He was a man with a life. He had a name too. What was his name? David Dorn. Victims of sin in the world have names. They're not nameless statistics. Jesus didn't come to earth to die for numbers. He came to die for people. And one of the first steps to recognizing someone's dignity is really simple. Learning their name. Great reversal. As we see in the story, it reveals to us the character, the heart, justice of God. Secondly, we learn from the parable, the great reversal should scare some of us and give hope to others. The great reversal should scare some of us and give hope to others. Honestly, it's hard to know 
uh, what Jesus intends us to do with this parable. It's not like at the end of this parable, he does what he does at the end of other parables, which is like, so here's what I want you to do. He doesn't do that. He just kind of leaves us hanging with, you know, this in, in incredibly dramatic statement. So it's hard to know what to do with this parable. On the other hand, we don't have to try too hard to know what to do with this. If we are poor, if we are oppressed, here's what we should do. We should have hope. Our suffering won't last. We will be comforted in heaven. Now we should keep working for justice on earth. We should keep fighting hunger. We should keep fighting racism. We should keep defending the unborn. We should keep protecting religious freedoms. We should do so in the manner of Christ with love, peace, nonviolence. But even if we don't succeed here on earth, we will see justice in heaven, as, as Abraham assures Lazarus. While here on earth, you received your bad things, but in heaven you will receive your good things. So if you are poor, if you are oppressed, you will receive your good things. But here's the thing. Let's be honest. Many of us here are not oppressed. Many of us here are not poor. We are abundantly blessed. For me, for me, as I read this parable, this parable is not my hope. This parable is my warning. I actually get nervous when I read this parable. I get nervous because I, I have successfully isolated myself from the poor. I live in a comfortable house, in a quiet neighborhood, miles away from poverty and riots. In fact, that was the point. I have to encounter poverty very rarely. And when I do, I know what to do. I, I, roll, I keep my window closed. When I drive by panhandlers, I lock my doors. I, I don't make eye contact with beggars. I, I don't carry cash for many reasons, but one of the reasons is that I can answer honestly. When I'm at a gas station, somebody asks me if I have money. Oh, man, sorry. My tendency is to close my eyes to poverty, to injustice. My tendency is to drive around it. Even as the George Floyd riot uh, protests grew, originally, I chose to stay busy, not following them much. I can do that because I don't live in it. Am I sealing my fate? Am I going to Hades? Am I ignoring Lazarus? The stakes are pretty high here. I want to be sure. Now, I know these are complicated questions, too. I mean, take the simple matter of, of beggars. A lot of social scientists will actually tell you not to give money to beggars as handouts. They say it, many of them say it just reinforces bad habits, it's reinforcing codependency or dependency, and it's not really solving the larger problem. So there's that. I mean, who knows what to do? I don't even know what to do. Maybe you're confused like me. On the other hand, we're not powerless here. There are intelligent ways to help. There are smart organizations that know what to do. Honestly, Rooftop is one of them. A portion of every donation you give to Rooftop goes to responsible organizations in our community who help feed the hungry, resettle refugees, build homes for the homeless, adopt and foster children. And there are intelligent ways to help beggars too. Uh, give them gift cards. I know a lot of you actually do that. Give them gift cards, buy them lunch. And there are opportunities to stretch yourself by leaving your neighborhood. We've got a homeless ministry that goes down every week. We go down to Mexico, Belize, twice a year to live in it, build homes. I mean, if you really want to stretch yourself, if you want to tell your soul, I'm not going to Hades, no, not today, I'm going to go to Mexico instead, that's what you should do. I mean, it might be just as hot, <laughs> but it's not Hades. You can get out. 
And however you respond to Jesus' warning, remember this, remember that detail, that person you're trying to serve. Get their name. Show them that you understand they are a person created in the image of God with a name, a face, a family, and a destiny. Great reversal reflects the character and justice of God. The great reversal should warn some of us, give others of us hope. And the last thing we have learned about the great reversal from this parable is this. The great reversal is permanent, and it has been prophesied. Great reversal permanent, it has been prophesied. To the rich man's request that Abraham send Lazarus with some water for his tongue, the patriarch explains that a, a chasm, a chasm has been fixed between the good place and the bad place. Rich man, stuck in Hades, Lazarus, secure with God, that judgment is final as it will be for us. It's not like, it's not like we can slap our foreheads in the afterlife and say, darn it, God, you know what I meant to do? Got to give me some credit for this, right? What I meant to do was to give all my money away from the poor, to the poor. I mean, give me some credit for that, right? Not going to work like that. Now, honestly, that seems kind of unfair that God would punish us eternally for decisions made temporally here on earth. But it's not like it requires that much moral intelligence for us to know that greed is bad. We don't have to be moral Einsteins to know that if we have money that might help somebody who has less, we should give it to them. Besides which, Jesus is reminding us of something that he truly understands, a sort of law of the universe that we really need to understand. He's reminding us of something very basic, that the decisions we make here on earth have consequences, that we are deciding here on earth what sort of person we want to be forever. It's not like we can get to the afterlife and decide to unbecome the people that we decided we wanted to become here on earth. The great reversal is permanent like that. But on top of that, not only is the great reversal permanent, but it has been prophesied. What I mean is that we can know it's coming. While enduring the dry heat of Hades, the rich man pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus back to earth to warn his brothers. Remember that? He says, I have five brothers. They're all as greedy as I am. We had greedy parents. They raised us greedily. Go warn them. That won't work, Abraham says. The stuff has been written about in the law and the prophets. Remember that, that these are Jewish people. Jews revered and studied the law and the prophets, the Hebrew scriptures. On the pages of the Old Testament, God had insisted to his people that he cares for the poor, they must care for the poor, and if they don't, they will suffer. That's been written in their scriptures for generations. They know that, they just don't want to believe it. And if they don't believe what God has said in his holy word, why would they believe a man who came back from the dead? Now, obviously, you know that in this little detail, Jesus is using it as a thinly veiled reference to whom? Preach the name. A thinly veiled reference to himself, to Jesus. Soon after telling this parable, Jesus was executed for religious crimes. But here's what happened. After Jesus rose from the dead, the most amazing thing happened. Everybody believed him. Everybody believed him. They're like, oh my gosh, Jesus, you were so right the whole time. Thank you for dying and coming back from the dead and, and, and telling me that I was wrong. And now I believe. Everybody believed him when they saw the risen Christ. Is that what happened? No, for those of you who don't know, I'm being deeply sarcastic right now. If you're a visitor to a rooftop, this is sarcastic Matt. That's not at all what happened. Most people continued in their unbelief. 
Some of them might have even had opportunity to see the risen Christ. Some of them might have had an opportunity to like talk to the disciples and like compare the stories. Some of them maybe even went to see the empty tomb. But get this, they continued to not believe. How is that possible? How is it possible that they saw a resurrected man, or at least had credible evidence that a man had raised from the dead, and they continued to not believe? How could any of us continue to not believe in the presence of a resurrected man? Because we are blinded by our sin. We don't want to believe. We like being sinners. We like being greedy. We like being racists. We like being lazy. So we choose to not see resurrected men. I actually think about this all the time. I mean, who of us wouldn't love to see the risen Christ? Who of us wouldn't love to hear God's word spoken to us from the sky? God, show me that you are real. Okay. Hey, Matt, this is God. I am real. Who of us doesn't pray that prayer? Now, it's a perfectly fine prayer to pray. And every now and then, this is crazy, every now and then, God actually answers it. But at the same time, I know I have all the revelation I need from God to live a life of faith. I have all the revelation I need from God to know how he feels about the poor and how I should too. I have all the revelation from God I need to know how I should love my family, how I should love my enemies. I have all the revelation from God I need to know uh, how, how how to serve and how to give. If I'm being honest, I seriously doubt that I will be any more committed to Jesus if I actually saw him walking around. If I'm being honest with myself. And if I may be so bold, I doubt you would too. We just tell ourselves that we would so that we can continue our lives of sin. So that we can keep living the lives we want to. But God knows us better than we know ourselves. God knows he has given us everything we need to live lives of generosity. Our problem is not knowledge. Our problem is not revelation. Our problem is faith. Our problem is obedience. Our problem is will. But here's the good news. Jesus can help us here. Jesus gives us here, for our good, a very strict warning about the great reversal. He tells us this story so that we don't end up in hell. He wants us to know where we might end up if we continue our lives of greed and selfishness. Not just because of God's judgment, but because that's the sort of lives, that's the sort of people we decided we wanted to become. But that's not how our story needs to end. We can be saved from Hades. We can be saved from hell or whatever you want to call it. We can be saved. All we got to do to be saved is to confess our sins. We need to confess that we are greedy. We need to confess that we are racist. We need to confess that we like having sex with people we're not married to. We need to confess that we are lazy. We need to confess in order to be forgiven. And then you got to get baptized. must be baptized to tell God and the world that we're going to live a new life with his help, with the help of God's spirit. We can actually become new people. That's actually possible. With the help of God's spirit inside of us, we can become the sort of people he wants us to become. That's what we got to do. That's what you can do. If you want to get saved, you want to get saved from Hades or hell or whatever you want to call it, that can happen this morning. That can happen this morning. Just come talk to me afterwards. We'll talk six feet apart. We'll talk 16 feet apart. We'll talk six inches apart. I don't care at this point. I just want to get saved. Now's the time. We need to work out a signal. Animal sounds now. 
The world will be reversed. We will all trade places. You ready? For that? You ignoring Lazarus at your gate? Are we ignoring the poor in our neighborhood? Are we ignoring the discriminated against in our city? Are we ignoring the lost at work? Have you confessed your sins? Have you been baptized for forgiveness? Have you received the power of the Holy Spirit to live differently? This is your chance. I don't know if this will be your last one or not. Could be. Make it count. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for Jesus' stories. What a master teacher who came up with this stuff, these stories. They're not just goofy little stories about conversations between heaven and hell. They are threatening tales that warn us of what might be true of us if we do not take the imminence and the permanence of your judgment seriously. Here on earth, we are telling ourselves and telling you what sort of people we want to be forever. That's how, that's how this earth works. Those are, that's how you set it up. We don't always see how you set up your creation, but that's how you set it up. Here on earth, uh, we get to decide what sort of people we want to be forever. Our decisions here are consequences. And according to those consequences, we will be, we will trade places. But you love us too much to let us trade down. So you came to earth to challenge us, our greed, our selfishness, how we spend our money, how we feel about other people, how we treat them, how we look at them. Are they just statistics? Are they names? Are they people? Relationships, identities, destinies. Uh, we repent for our ignorance. We repent that we choose to walk by Lazarus at our gate. Our city is filled with Lazaruses. Our city is filled with Lazari. But we want to see them, open our eyes to them, figure out, help us figure out how we can serve, how we can show the world your love. People who are oppressed, people who suffer racism, suffer poverty, hunger, homelessness. For those of us who have means, and all of us have some means, for those of us who have means, help us, help us know. Forgive us our sins, we know that you do, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Pour your Holy Spirit into us so that we can uh, live the lives you've called us to live. We pray these things this morning, and we also, we pray for the world, our city, uh, the world is suffering. The world has never not suffered as a result of sin, but uh, sin takes on new shapes and forms every day. Right now the world is in flames over racial discrimination and violence, which are not just centuries old. Those have, those have existed since, since humans first start interacting. Help us here at Rooftop know how we can um, show the world the peace and love of Jesus. I'm sure that starts with us repenting of our own sins. So help us look inward first. We close this morning, Father, by sharing together the words of the Apostles' Creed that Christians around the world have been repeating together as Christians. 
for centuries, words that remind us of who we are, what we believe, words that help us find unity as your people in the truth that all your God's people hold on to, words that will appear on the screen if you don't know them. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.